Just a show of hands, who, who's been in a traditional mainline, they'd probably call it church? You're Anglican, Baptist, Presbyterian, Uniting. Anyone come from those areas? Yeah, great, okay. I have a, a long history of being an Anglican. There's a funny joke they tell about Anglicans. You get to heaven and everyone's standing around and there's like a little walled off section. And someone says, what's with that walled off section with the people in it? And I said, shh, that's the Anglicans. They think they're the only ones here. And if you know Anglicans, that's kind of funny. But the heritage that I got from the Anglican church was to deeply respect the word and to understand that God's word means something. It contains truths that you don't have to think through to any great degree of time or space or the things that grab your attention day in, day out because they are anchored in not just history, but in the eternal word of God. There's sort of, sorts of things that don't change. And so I revere that part of my life as much as I make jibes about it every now and then because it taught me something incredibly important about this book, not just this book, but the Bible itself, which is to be believed. It contains things that will change and transform my life. And if I humble myself before it, before the very words of God, my life will not only be changed but be transformed into something that is victorious as well. So I want to speak from God's word tonight, which you'd hope someone from the front would say when they start. But also what I want to do is illuminate a few things uh, about us, about what we believe, about what we might believe, and then just exhort us from Scripture, just alluding to what the, John the Baptist had to say about his belief. But let's start with prayer. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it guides us it changes us, it transforms us. We thank you that it is beyond believable, it is true. We thank you that our opinion about it does not necessarily matter as much as its eternal nature does. So we thank you for it, we pray that it would guide us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now if you have been in a mainstream mainline church or you've stumbled into a church on a Sunday by accident that wasn't this church... Uh, you might have had to go through something that they would call a creed. Has anyone had to recite a creed, maybe even at school? Just a show of hands if you had. A few of you, a few, a few people sheepishly putting up their hands. I'll put you on the spot and ask you to recite it. No, it can be difficult sometimes because creeds are the sorts of things which bring about core belief. Well, they tell us about something that we believe. And for many, many years, in fact, for thousands of years, Christian churches gathered and people recited creeds. Now, anyone, you can call out. It's a bit, a bit interactive. Call out, why do you think they would do that? Why do we have creeds? Not just an obscure band from the 90s. Why is that? Because people couldn't read. Excellent answer. Any other ideas? Why would you say something over and over again? Reinforce it? Great. Sorry? To memorize it? Absolutely. For all of the above reasons, and also because if you and I met in the street today, and we said, hey, I'm a Christian. You sort of have a knowing look in your eye. Oh, you've gone through the same pain that I've gone through. Um, now, when you connect with somebody else today, it's some, a, little, a little bit easier to understand what sort of person they are if they say, I believe in Jesus. But many years ago, that wasn't always the case. You didn't know if you're meeting somebody, if they were on the fringe, if they had some sort of strange set of beliefs, and that does happen a bit today sometimes. But back in the day, there was no unifying, or for a long period of time, there wasn't a unifying set of beliefs that the Christian early church had to fall back on. 
And so about 300 years after Jesus, the guy got together with a bunch of other people and they formed what they called the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed. It was made in 325 AD. And its job was to try and bring unity to belief. And so I want to look at the Nicene Creed. I want to pose this question to you. What do we believe? And then as we go through that, I want to ask the question, what do you believe? And then we'll finish looking at an exhortation. So what do we believe? When we get up and we sing these songs together, just think for a moment. You're standing up with some other people in a room. Maybe you've spent some time with them. Maybe they're randoms. Do they believe the same thing that you believe? Are they on the same page? You're all saying the same sorts of things, but what do we believe? Well, many, many years ago, they decided to put this together into these words, the Nicene Creed, hopefully through the wonders of technology. It'll appear on the screen. Now, the curveball is the Nicene Creed nearly fills a whole page in small print. So to get it on this screen in some size is a little bit complicated, but I'll, I'll repeat it, and if it doesn't appear, that is totally fine as well. The Nicene Creed says this. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. That means he came from God. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. Sound familiar? We just sang that. For us men, for us people, and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate, which means he became embodied in human form, from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit. The Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic, that means universal, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. 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 Just so you know, that is what we believe. If someone said, what do Christians believe? That's the sort of thing that you could say. And after about two lines, they would have walked away. Um, but that's the sort of thing that anchors our belief. The Nicene Creed says almost everything that this book would summarize about what Christian belief really means. So why are we asking the question, why, what do we believe? Well, I'd like to posit that when it comes to Christmas time, there's lots of things that happen, lots of things. Some of them are good, some of them are complicated. Some of you with your families are looking forward to those moments that you get to spend together. Some of you are really looking forward to those moments where no one else is around and they've all left. For some people, and this is a, a painful reality for many, Christmas is not a happy time. It's not the thing you do look forward to at the end of the year. For some people, it's incredibly lonely. For others who've come from abusive backgrounds, there's trigger moments 
over the Christmas break that bring back memories which they wish they could forget. And when we think about what we believe, I think it actually affords us a helpful premise, a helpful foundation that can assist us through times which are complicated. And why is that? When we have something outside of ourselves, which is objective, it doesn't rely just on our feelings about it, it can help to give us strength and a foundation that supersedes those moments that are hard. For instance, you might find it difficult to love your family, but if you understand that loving your family is a good thing, and if you sow into it, if you attempt to love them even if they're unlovable, I can guarantee, like Scripture would say and would promise, that good fruit will come. And so when I look at things like the Nicene Creed, and it was drummed into me for many, many years, and I'd have to sit and stand and kneel and do all these other things which you might have had to go through as well, I realised that it was giving me something that I didn't even anticipate at the time would be useful. It was reminding me of something that, even if I didn't feel like it, was true. And over this Christmas period, you will sing and you will listen to and you'll hear from other people core ideas about belief. And your overriding question might be, is that what we believe? For instance, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Everybody knows that? I won't ask you to sing it and you won't ask me to sing it. In verse 2 it says, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. You've sung this a lot. Vowed in flesh the Godhead see, howl the incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. All of those things come from the Nicene Creed, which then come from the Bible. So when you're singing Christmas carols, they're not just cutesy little songs which someone's penned together because it sounds kind of nice. They're actually things that are rooted in truth. The things that when you sing them out loud are transformative. When we sing O Holy Night, it's got an incredible oratorio in there. It's an amazing, amazing piece of music. And all the singers in the room know, know that one note that you've got to try and hit and you don't want to. Um, but for the rest of us who enjoy singing it and enjoy listening to it being sung, you realise there's some incredible truths that sit inside of it, much like every other Christmas carol that we have, in particular traditional Christmas carols. What we believe is incredibly important. And it should be uniform. It should be structured. You should have a knowledge about it that you pursue. And if not, I'd say that this Christmas period could be defined by a time where you spend some time working out whether or not there are things that you need to realign about your beliefs. And why would you do that? It will serve you well in the short term. It will definitely serve you well in the long term. I remember walking into a church and thinking, because I was a bit judgy, I thought, I don't know if these guys are on point when it comes to their Bible. And I sat at the back with my arms folded, trying to catch the preacher out if he said something that was a little bit off. Uh, Christians, you know, a few Christians like that. I'm sure we might have been like that ourselves from time to time. I was sitting at the back and I couldn't fault what was being spoken. It was a pure gospel message that just outlined very, very simply that Jesus was my saviour, that if I submitted to him, my life would be transformed and changed. A very simple message that's very true. 
I'd like you to think the same thing about Christmas carols. They're very simple at times, but they're very true. So what's more important than what we believe? I think it's understanding where God sits in the picture. In the Nicene Creed, it says that when it alludes to Jesus, it says he's begotten, not made. Begotten, not made. Who invented that phrase? When something is made, it is created. You can make a bird seed holder for Christmas and give it to your mother-in-law. Great gift. When you make something, it's not you. So why is it important that Jesus was begotten, not made? Well, he's not a creature. He actually is God. And so a core belief sits right there in the Nicene Creed. It's sung about in various songs. We hear it in Scripture. We say it in this creed. He is God and is man. An incredible paradox in many ways. This Christmas, you'll also see a bunch of photos and pictures and paintings about the nativity scene. We've got one just down the back. Everyone in that scene looks magnificent. Their clothes are immaculate. Baby Jesus is sitting there glowing. You'll see all these different things with people with their hands like this, with halos behind them and those sorts of things. Very different to a delivery room if you've ever seen someone give birth. I've had that privilege four times. Not me, my wife. Watching anxiously, two times Caesar, two times natural. Just so you understand the prowess my wife has, that is almost a statistical anomaly. You don't have natural babies after two Caesars. Incredible woman. And as I watched the natural births, dear Lord, (laughs) I appreciate women very much. And I think men, including myself, complain too much about things that we endure, and watching what can only be described as a horrific event <laughs> multiple times, I can, you don't want to have lunch before those things. That's, that's all it, it's one of those things that when you endure it, it, yeah, it takes your breath away for all the wrong reasons. But it also is incredibly magnificent. It's incredibly magnificent. And I have an iconic photo that I will share with nobody else that I took of my wife just moments after she gave birth with one of our children. And it is a magnificent photo as much as it is horrific. Because when you look at it, you see the face of someone who has just exerted themselves with one of the most painful and amazing things that they might have to do. And the result has been amazing for everybody. Another child in the world. And so if you think of the nativity scene and you think of it in its sanitized form, I don't think it really captures the element of what's happening and what happened there. It would have been chaotic. It would have been, in many ways, quite disgusting for those involved. I'm sure the animals would have contributed their own part to it. It would have been noisy. There would have been chaos. And you would have had two parents who had no idea what the future held. And somehow they have to wrap their heads around begotten, not made. This didn't come from us, although it did. It came from God, although it's fully human. A strange paradox that would have been blowing their minds as much as they would have been mopping up everything that happens during birth. The mother's in the room smiling about that one. In the Nicene Creed, it also says, on the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. 
when we have creeds and they say things to various people and they speak to us through the ages, um, they actually are anchored in the Bible and they, they need to be. The words of Isaiah ring true from the creed and they were written 700 years before they came to pass. If you have your Bible handy, you can flick over to Isaiah chapter 7. It says this in verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin, young girl, will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Jesus didn't just go through those things because they were nice historical events. He fulfilled history. If we flick over through to Isaiah 50, and Isaiah 50, in, in the 50s, I should say, say some incredible things. If you look through Isaiah from, verse, from chapter 50 onwards, you'll just hear some, the echo of history and the echo of Jesus' life in many, many different instances. It's just an incredible account through the whole book, but also in particular in these verses, that give us a picture of what happened 2,000 years ago that had been written 700 years before. That sort of thing isn't a prediction. Predictions are kind of educated guesses. Prophecies involve imperatives, will. This will happen. Why does that give us an assurance? It's because it's not dependent on our interpretation. So what will happen? Isaiah 53. He grew up before, before us, before him, like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we, we, we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Not exactly baby Jesus but the same Jesus talked about in the creed. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In the Creed it says, We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Jesus gave us uh, an incredible gift, not just his life and wiping away our sin. He doubled down on that. And he said, I'll give you something incredibly precious, and that was his spirit. We read in Romans chapter 8, it says, In the same way, the spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't, do not know what we ought to pray for, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. If you hear people speaking in tongues, that verse explains why. But he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. 
When we look at the creed, I think it's an incredible representation of the things that we believe. But a more pertinent question is, what do you believe? What do you believe? And why is that important? What do you actually believe? If you look in the book of James and elsewhere, you'll hear an amazing revelation about what it's like to look at somebody's life and to work that out from what they do. James says it very plainly. He says, I don't mind all that much about what you say. I'll tell you what you believe by what you do. It's very easy to level that at other people. A great saying goes along the lines that we judge other people by their actions and ourselves in, in a very different manner, by our intentions. And what I know, and I know this of myself, is that I can actually work out what I believe by simply trying to work out what I value. And values can be a little bit vacuous at times, but I'll tell you how you work them out. You just have to think of two things. One is how much time you put into something and whether or not you love it. And the two are very much interlinked. So you might say this Christmas time, I love my family. Everyone loves their family, right? Do you spend time with them? Not so much. Kind of wish my mother didn't stay as long as she did. You might say, I love gift giving. I'm a generous sort of person. Are you doing it? Do you spend time on that? Do you actually love it? Is there an expression of it in your life? I remember this was a really humbling moment where I was saying to other people as I was doing some leadership talks once that I really loved my brothers and I realised I hadn't talked to them or spoken with them in a long period of time. There are things that we do that we judge ourselves by that are all intention-based. But with other people, we can jump to action. And that's why it's important to say that I believe, dot, 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 and those dots are very well qualified and clarified and clear. What do you believe? And over this Christmas period, you'll be challenged that. That will become a challenge for you. Because you'll be sitting next to someone, maybe at your rowdy family Christmas party or somewhere else in public, and they might say some comment about something that you actually believe. Uh, Sorry, I was just at church on Sunday and I believe something different. And you'll have a chance to exercise your belief. And why is that important? I think every time we take little bits of ground and we exercise little bits of courage, our faith grows And as our faith grows, our dependency on God grows. And as that grows, he is most glorified and honoured in us. So what should our response be? If you have your Bible there, you can flick over to the book of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And I think John encompasses for us three different things that are great responses to how God appears to us in our life how he's represented in a creed and how we can as people respond to him today. In John chapter 1 from verse 21, John who started the ministry of Jesus by paving a way for him was asked this question by the followers who were, who were milling around at that time, trying to work out who he was. His response was this. They said, 
Are you Elijah? Are you a prophet from a long time ago? He says, I'm not. They asked him, are you a, but are you a prophet? Like, are you, kind of, are you kind of a big deal? And he said, no, I'm not. Finally, they, they said, who are you? Give us an answer, because we want to go back to the people who asked us and, and tell them who you are. What do you say about yourself? And he says, I'm the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. Then he gets asked the question, why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, you're not Elijah, you're not a prophet? How can you say these sorts of things when you're nobody? And he says something that is at the essence of believing in Jesus. He says, I do these things, I baptize with water. But among you, and in that crowd he was, stands one that you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. John's response to Jesus is our response to Jesus. Humility. This always floors me. I find myself in strange situations every now and then where even as of this moment being elevated means one thing. But you realise John's response is incredibly mature. And if we don't respond in humility, and perhaps we've been walking the Christian journey for some time, another way we can respond is through maturity. In John chapter 3, he replies, A person can only receive what is given them from heaven. You can testify that I said I'm not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. And he uses this analogy, the, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy, as John is saying, is mine and is now complete. I did what I was supposed to do. And then he says this, and if there's nothing else you hear tonight, let this be your mantra. He says about Jesus, he must increase so that I must, and I will decrease. He must increase, and I must decrease. We respond to Jesus with humility, we respond in maturity, and if nothing else, and perhaps you're here tonight, and you don't know who Jesus is, there's one other way that we can all respond, and that is with recognition. In chapter 1, verse 29, John simply says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now our creed allows us, and is the creed that we believe, to think through things which I think are incredibly deep things. They're profound things. They're things of amazing belief. And they set us apart from other religions. They ground us in God's eternal word. And they're purely transformative. But those things are superseded by the things that we believe as individuals. One begets the other. Not baguettes, that's a French term. One begets the other. And so I would challenge you over this Christmas period, as you dwell upon what God is saying to you, as you think through what you believe, as you ask others and you work out in those quiet moments that you have by yourself, 
What is it that sits inside of your heart? Perhaps the Nicene Creed will feature. Perhaps those words of John will resonate. Perhaps that prophecy in Isaiah will speak to you. And my hope is that as you turn your attention to Jesus over this Christmas period, that you'll realise that he looks at us in an incredible way, a fond way, a way which for us is purely transformational. And he does that to you and he calls you to him today and will this Christmas. So let me pray. And as I do, I just want to particularly pray for anyone in the room who is still considering what it means to follow Jesus. You might not have made a commitment to Jesus directly. You may have made a commitment and that commitment over time has gone cold. Or you may have been a Christian for some time and you'd like to renew that commitment to Jesus. Let the words that we've had spoken tonight ring true. We believe in one God. We believe in a saviour who redeems. We believe in someone who came into history to intercede on our behalf. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can overly, overtly say in safety in this country that we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. We, we thank you for the truths that we speak, that we know of, that guide our thinking and assist our hearts. And we pray, Heavenly Father, for anyone in this room who does not know you. I pray, Lord God, that they will see you afresh, that your word will speak to them. I pray, Heavenly Father, for anyone in this room and anyone who will be listening along, who will be going through a Christmas that isn't enjoyable, that doesn't contain peace and hope and joy, that is the opposite of the sanitized nativity scene. There's chaos and messy. I pray for those people. I pray their hearts will be renewed. That peace will come. I pray, Lord God, for those people who have been walking beside you faithfully for many years. Encourage them, Lord God. Remind them of what their faith means. Remind them, Jesus, of your truth. Give them a buoyant spirit. And lastly, Lord, I pray for everybody here. I thank you, Lord God, that you came into history, that you redeemed us to set us free from those things that we've brought upon ourselves, the bad decisions that we've made, the sin that mars our hands. We thank you that your blood was shed so that we could be pure before you. We thank you for that gift. We pray that this Christmas we will not miss the central meaning that is buried in those songs, those incredible carols, in the words that are spoken. We pray that we won't miss you 
the Christ in Christmas. So be with us, Heavenly Father. Help us, lead us and guide us and guard our hearts over the next few weeks as we celebrate you together. Amen. Amen. I'll be down the front and I'd love to pray with you if you had a response to the message or you wanted to speak with me further about any of that. I will happily invite robust theological debates as well. Um, So anyone who'd like to join me at the front, I'd love to speak with you or pray for you. It would be an honour to do that. And if you don't know Jesus, just come up afterwards. I'd love to speak with you as well. Maybe we can have a conversation about what we believe and hopefully that will inspire you to seek him out yourself.